This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, we want to welcome everybody. First of all, we want to thank the Batuov and the Rachmanov. Does that sound right? Yeah. Family. Thank you, first of all, for inviting me over here. Uh, we're also learning tonight, Lilu Nishmat Naomi Batrivka and Rufuash Namat Rufal Ben Frida. So, first of all, Mazato for whoever here finished the, you know, the, the 613 mitzvot. Um, yeah, give yourself a round of applause. It's amazing. That was the easy part. Now you got to do it. That was the harder part. <laughs> Just learning about it. The instructions is the easy part. Building the shelves, the building the unit, that's the hard part. But, so we'll discuss a little bit about the 613 mitzvot, 613 commandments. Get a little bit of a better understanding on why we need to learn the 613 commandments. And also to understand why we have 613 commandments. So... I get questions asked to me all the time. Uh, it makes, makes my life really interesting. That one of the questions that, that are fairly common is, what's with all the commandments? Why do we have so many commandments? I talk about 613, that's a lot of commandments. You look at any other religion, you could count usually on, you know, on a, your hands and feet and somebody else's hands if you maybe tops on how many commandments there are over there. You talk about Judaism, you even think about, let's say something as simple as a sukkah. Not only do we have 630 commandments, but now we have about a thousand subcategories. So you're building a sukkah. How big the sukkah can be? Can be too big? Can be too small? How high is it going to be? Can it be too high? Can it be too short? How many holes is, is the walls moving? Is the walls shaking? How type of roof are you going to have? The easiest way to understand and how, if you really know about the mitzvot is when you think about it, imagine trying to explain it to a non-Jew. So imagine, and, and I've done this, like imagine a guy, you know, being that we're speaking about so-called, imagine a non-Jew comes over to you, you're holding your lulav, you're talking, you're the same, and he comes over to you and you'd be like, so uh, what's with the spear? You know, what are you doing with this thing? <laughs> so you start explaining to him, well, this is from a palm branch, and this is a citrus food, and this is, you know, that fruit, and this, and so on and so forth. And then, let's say he'll start asking you, like, simple questions. You know, like, how much does this cost? How much does that cost? And you tell, you're holding a lemon, right? And you tell him, some people pay hundreds of dollars for the lemon. And you'll say, you know, like this, you know, yeah, this is a $150 lemon. You'd be like, are you out of your mind? Like, what's the difference between this lemon and that lemon? And you really try, and then you even try to even dare to explain to him, well, listen, if it's beautiful, <laughs> it's worth a lot more. He's like, what is this, a diamond? Like, what are you talking about beautiful? It's the clarity in it, the color in it, the size in it, the shape in it, just like a diamond, that's why the talk is. So when you're saying that we have 613 mitzvot, we have 613 categories. And then we have add a comma and then a few zeros, and that's how many mitzvot that you could probably possibly put into, in, into place over here. So when you think about it, why do we have it? And the question that I get asked fairly often is, what's up with all the commandments? Like, why does God want us to do so many stuff? Like, why can't it just be simpler? Just be a good person, you know, say thank you, say I'm sorry, do the good, you know, the good, the good, the good spiel, and that's it. Why do we have to have so many commandments? The interesting thing is, who asks me those types of, of questions? So you have, I'll give you two options. Number one, somebody who was never religious before. All of a sudden decides he wants to become religious, wants to become, you know, more about Judaism. And then you come in, and then you give him a manifesto of all the laws that he has to do now, or she has to do now. And then you're going to have to do all this stuff. That's option one. Option two is somebody that's been religious his entire life. And that's it. He's just been religious his entire life. Who do you think is going to ask the question, why do we have so many laws, so many regulations, so many obligations, you know, in the Torah as compared to other religions? You would say the one that what? That, that's new. The answer is no. It's weird. It's not that. 
It's not the ones that, that, uh, that have been around with the religion. You know who asked the questions? The Jews that have been Jews for, since day one, all of a sudden they want to know why. Why do we have to do so many things? Really, does it matter? Does it matter if I have a key in my packet on Shabbat or I don't have a key? Is it catering? Is it really going to make a difference if my lemon is a little bit blemished? Is it going to make a difference if my sukkah walls are shaking a little bit? Is it going to make a difference if my skirt is going to be a little too high? What's the, is God really going to care? Is it really going to be the end of the world? So the questions that usually get asked is usually from this, from the aspect of people that are religious. And it's a good question. Why did God give us so many commandments? Very, very imperative. So we'll discuss some, some reasons and some you know, understandings of, of what is the purpose of all these things. Number one, we know that the mitzvot, what they do is they make us better people. Whether you like it or not, if you're listening to the talk, it's going to make you a better person. Just look at the simple thing. Are you, you're not going to get angry. According to the law, you know it's a big. You know how big of a sin is anger. If you are get, if you're an angry person, if someone gets angry, it's a, as if you are you worship idols. Somebody that worship idols, that's one of the big three commandments. That's also something simple. Not only are you not allowed to get angry, you're not supposed to be stingy, you're supposed to be nice, you're supposed to be kind, you're supposed to visit the sick, you're supposed to be a good husband, you're supposed to be a good wife, you're supposed to be, there's lists and lists that go on to make you a better person. So the commandments, first and foremost, is to make you a better person. And it really does. It really does. If you're, if you're, I had a, a couple, I said this over quite some time, where the, the man became more religious and the wife, they both started off, they weren't religious. The man became more religious and the wife was very against it. She was like, what are you bringing with this? All of a sudden we have to do with this God and yada, 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 all these obligations. She was, she wasn't into it. He used to come to my classes. Uh, a short while goes by and she starts coming to my classes. And, and, you know, and then she was telling, and she was, she mentioned it to me and she said, you know, like, at the beginning, I was very against it. So I said, what changed? What all of a sudden changed from being against the religion to all of a sudden keeping and observing the religion? And she says, what can I tell you? My husband started being a nicer person. He got angrier less. He started treating me better. I said, if this is what religion does, then, you know, I want a piece of it. You know, it must be something good going on. Somebody who, and by the way, people that dress religious doesn't always mean that they are religious. You know, it, it, really what's going on in here. If you really act according to the laws of the Torah, then yes, you're going to be a better person. But not only that the Torah is making you a better person, your thinking is going to be different as well. The way that the, the mitzvot work, there is, um, you can think of things, two things like you have obligations and you have rights. This is a, you know, Rabbi Kiva Tass speaks about this, um, you know, in depth. I'll give you an example like this. So this is my phone, right? And it's my right that I have this phone. It's your obligation not to take my phone. Now, if you take my phone, now I have a right to get that back. I have to go through court and yada, 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 the whole thing. There's, there's two aspects here that we have to focus on. There's obligations and there's rights. So, I have a right to my property. Your obligation is not to infringe on my right. Your obligation is not to come onto my property. Now, what is very, very important is where is your outlook in life? The Medrash and Chuma and Pashat Noach brings down that there is a, uh, there was Alexander the, Alexander the Great. He went to visit a far off province and he wanted to see how they judge their, their cases. And, I'm sorry, it was Medrash Rabbah, not a Medrash Rabbah. He goes and, they, and they're going to, tri- to, to see how they go and how they judge their, their court, their cases. And they're going and he sees, he walks in, there's a court case going on. What is the court case? There is person A bought a field from person B. And person A, while he was plowing his field, he found a treasure under, underground. And they found this treasure, they took the treasure and they brought it to the king. Now what was the argument? The person that bought the field said, hey listen, 
I bought the field. I didn't buy the treasure. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the guy that I bought it from. And the other guy said, no, no, no. He says, I sold him the field. It belongs, everything belongs to him. It doesn't belong to me. So two people are focusing on that. So what, what did the, the, um, the king in that, in that country do? He said, do you have a son? They said, yes. Do you have a daughter? Yes. Mazaltov, Shiduch. Right? And they said, who's going to share the money? The, the children are going to go and they're going to take, they're going to share the money. So Alexander was looking at this and he was shocked. And they turned over, the king turned over to him and says, what, you would have done it differently? And the guy said, yeah, said, of course. Said, what would you have done? So I would have murdered both of them and taken the money for myself. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and there's a lot to speak about this Midrash and how we understand it. He wasn't, you know, Alexander the Great wasn't, you know, an imbecile. He knew, he, you know, he had some brains. Um, and so, but what the interesting factor that to think about is the people in this far-off province, they were not looking at their rights. They were looking at their obligation. What is my obligation for the other person? And the other, and the, from Alexander Macedonia says, it's my right. I'm able to do this, I'm taking it. So there's two aspects that you can look at it, your obligations and your rights. Now how important it is, you can see in relationships. You look at, for example, between a husband and a wife. So a husband works hard all day, and he comes home, and he says, listen, I want a clean house, I want warm food, I want this and this and this, has a whole thing. And the wife goes and says, listen, I work hard also and I work and then I clean the house and then I put the warm food and then I put the kids to sleep. I want, you know, a diamond ring, a vacation, another car, you know, and they have a list. Now, when each spouse is looking at what is my right, I have a right to a warm meal. I have a right to have a diamond ring. I have a right for a vacation. Then all you're thinking about is yourself. This is where my circle is. It's right over here. But if you stop for a second and think about instead of thinking, what do I need to get? What is my uh, right? Think about what is my obligation? What is my obligation for my spouse? So instead of thinking, oh, hey, I deserve this, I deserve, I deserve this, what about what does the other person want? So instead of the wife saying, I need this, I need this, I need this, she says, what does my husband need? What does my husband need? And the husband saying, well, instead of I'm thinking about what I need, what does my wife need? Now that is the difference between focusing between rights and th- focusing between obligations. When you're looking at civil law, when you're looking at the laws of the states of, of almost any democracy, it's focused on rights. It says, okay, you have the right to this property. He took that right away from you. You have to go and you have the right to, you know, so on and so forth and, and get it back or whatever, you know, the, the methods that you want to pursue. The Torah doesn't look at it as rights. The Torah's mitzvot, the Torah's commandments is on your obligation. You have an obligation that if you find the lost object, you have to return it to your friend. You have an obligation not to get married. You have the obligation not to say lashon You have an, the focus is very, very subtle, but very, very different. The focus is not becoming just a good person because I'm not supposed to get angry because I, whatever. Your focus is because you're not supposed to get angry, period. Not because, you know, there's, there's, I don't know if they still have it, but at one point they had these things called the scream rooms where um, people would get very, very frustrated and angry and they just want to scream. So they go to a place, they pay them some money and they put this cat, you know, padded put, you know, cushion room and they just scream and run into the walls and break things or whatever to release your stress, to release your, to release your anger. But they don't realize it's the opposite. The more that you feed into the anger, the anger you're going to get. Then it's going to happen. You're not going to have cushion. In the, you know, it's going to be in your home and you're going to start screaming like you're used to screaming. But whatever the case is, it's, it's the idea of, of where the focus is at. If your focus is on your right, you're doing for failure. If your focus is on your obligation, then you're then you're then you're going for success. So the Torah's commandments, their focus is to change the way that you think. You no longer think about your rights. Now you're thinking about your obligation rather than your rights. So that was um, and, and there was once a story that there was once a, a man who did a very very big favor for a, a big rabbi. And the rabbi gave him a crazy ultimatum. He says, listen, I'll give you two options. He did me this huge favor. You have two options. Number one, 
when you get up in the next world, you're sitting right next to me. And this was a big rabbi, a real one, like a jit. Yeah, he's like, you're saying he's sitting right next to some rabbis. I tell you that it's you know it depends. You know, some of them are up, some of them are down. But this one is going very, very high up. This is a legit rabbi. You're sitting over there. You're sitting right on the top. You know, uh, you know of the of the. You're sitting at the top of the pyramid in the next world. That's option number one. For the most people, the second you say, I say, listen, you don't have to tell me option number two. I'm taking, I'm taking door number one. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. Option number two was, I'll bless you for a lot of wealth. So he goes, he thinks about it. He goes back to the rabbi. He says, rabbi, I'll take option number two. Now, this is a guy who's a chassid, who's someone who knows the value of the olam haba, knows the value of Ghana, knows what he's talking about, and he still chose the wealth. And the rabbi says, fine, give me the blessing. So the chassidim, his, his friends, goes over there and says, what are you, crazy? You had the opportunity to sit next to the greatest rabbi in olam haba, and you gave it up for some money? So he said, yeah. He says, you know, what benefit would it do for me to sit in olam haba? Who it would help? It would help me. It would help me that I would be able to sit in Ramaba. That's very nice. He says, but that's not going to help anybody else. But if I have money, I'm going to be able to help everybody else. So there's two ways that I could think about it. Here I'm going, I'm going to help myself. Or I'm going to go and I can help other people. He says, I decided that I'd rather help other people than help myself. Now, that is a very high level to get to that level, to think that you are on that level. You know, some people say, yeah, yeah, of course. I'd rather, and I've asked this question before to people like, you have two options. You could either have... You know, it used to be Bill Gates' life, but now it's uh, Jeff Bezos' life. So if you have Jeff Bezos' life, or and you have this world and the next world of Jeff Bezos at this stage in your life, follow this question. Yeah, this stage of your life, you have you know Jeff Bezos, who's worth uh, over a hundred. I don't know what dips and ups and downs, loses fourteen billion, gains fourteen billion, whatever he is, right? He, you know, if someone has enough to lose fourteen billion, then you know it's a, at least they have that, right? So he's in that level. You have a hundred billion dollars in the bank, or you have let's say the life of Chamavadia Yosef. Now, what would you choose? Now, I've asked this to many people, and, and people contemplate, and say, okay, Chamavadi Yosef, so, and then it's, you know, there's, you know, only Jews, they'll be like, okay, at what stage is Chamavadi Yosef's life are we talking about over here? Are we talking about the end? The you know, once you're starting to dig into it. But a lot of them said, yeah, I'll, be, I'll take the money of Jeff Bezos, and then I'll support all the yeshivot and all the things and everything else like that. <laughs> but, you know, that's true and that's very good. But when you think about it, what is the source? Is the source really because you want to help somebody else? Or the source is you want to help yourself. I'll just leave myself 20 billion in the bank. And then everybody else could get, you know, the, the other thing. So is your source yourself or is your source others? What the Torah's objective is, what the Torah says when you're learning the commandments, you're learning the mitzvot, is not anymore about you. It's about somebody else. It's thinking about others. So that is number two. Number three, the, the reason why we have the mitzvot is we know it's a, we have a relationship with God. There's a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, how do you get into this relationship? We, one of the things is, is that we know, it says in Bereshit, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created us in His image. Now, what that means is just like, the Midrashim will go and speak about it. Just like God is merciful, you're merciful. God visits the sick, you visit the sick. God does chaset, you do chaset. And each case is different case of the Torah, which brings the mitzvot, shows you what God did, and then we emulate God's ways. By emulating God's ways, we build a, a you know, a sort of a relationship, uh, you know, towards it. Now, think of this, you know, scenario. There is, um, I was actually searching, what's the most expensive hotel in the world? The hotel room, you know, if you want to book a hotel room. So all the women, please cover your ears. Yeah, you know, the, there's like one hotel room in Switzerland that's $90,000 a night. $90,000 a night. One room. Well, it's not, I mean, it's a suite, so... And there's one, but I was trying, there's one in New York, in New York, in New York City. It's called the Mark Hotel. They have the presidential suite. You're talking about a 10,000 square foot, um, suite with, you know, I don't know how many bedrooms and, you know, and, and a two and a half thousand square foot terrace. You know, a very, very nice new, $75,000 a night. Oh, remember the 
Remember, it's happening next anniversary. So, uh, um, they, they uh, uh, imagine, you know, a husband goes and takes his, his, his wife over there for a week. Right? So it goes over there, you know, for a week. But instead of just going into this most expensive, most fanciest hotel, what he, did, what he does is he spends an extra, you know, few hundred dollars, few thousand dollars, and let's call it bedazzles the place up. He puts stuff in there, like uh, he gets an artist to come in there and to draw with rose petals on the bed, let's say, you know, I don't know, something memorable between them. Or like puts different, different types of little uh, personal, you know, like a personalized gift in there. And this could be your imagination, it could be anything. It could be, I don't know, her face painted on a seashell. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, anything that, that, will, that will feel about, but something personal. Something personal in it. Now, the, the, when, when she's going to go back and she's going to remember you know, that, that type of vacation, what's she going to remember? She's going to remember the, you know, the 10,000 square foot apartment? The te- or she's going to remember what those extra few hundred dollars or few thousand dollars that the husband did you know, that personalized, those extra little details. Those extra little details are going to go a lot further than anything else. That's why if you, let's say you buy you know, your wife a very expensive diamond ring, that's amazing. But imagine if you personalize that ring. Personalize it with something just you and your wife know. There's a connection, there's words, I don't know, but whatever it is, that when you make it personal, that just took it from being worth a few thousand dollars to, you know, just add a few zeros to it. Because the personal details are make it so much more, make, make it worth so much more. And that is why the, you know, a lot of women, for example, when they, if they, God forbid, they lose their wedding band, they get very upset. Why it's their wedding band? Okay, just buy you another one. It's a hundred bucks. What's, what's, what's no, but it symbolizes something. This is what, so the personal details come, go a lot further than the actual object itself. Now, when God gave us the commandments, so you think about it this way. You have, let's say, uh, you could buy an etog. Right? When we started speaking about etog, you could buy an etog, you buy a good one, a kosher one, let's say, for $30. But then you could buy even a better one. You could personalize it, make it even a little bit better for $60. So all of a sudden, that, that not only takes that mitzvah and puts it into a personal, the details is what I'm trying to say, the details of the mitzvah, 630 mitzvah, yeah, but the details is what make it personalized. All of a sudden, it's not 630, but it's something that it's, it's a little bit extra that makes that $1,000 mitzvah worth now $10,000 or $100,000. The same idea is, you know, the, there are people, a good relationship means that both people want to be in that relationship. If two people do not want to be in that relationship, if either one of them doesn't want to be in that relationship, it's done. There's nothing even to discuss anymore. When two people want to be in it, it's, it, there's, there's so much room for success. The second that one falls out, that's it. It's, it's doomed for failure. When you're doing a mitzvah, and when you're adding your own personal touch, so you could have gotten a $30 you know, talk and it's fine, but you put in your own personal thing in there, all of a sudden that shows you, I'm not doing this because I have to, I'm doing this because I want to. I know that I, you needed to learn Torah. And you go and you learn, go to Shul Torah. Whatever it is that you go. And you're learning for an hour. And then what happens? The second that the rabbi says, you know, brings uh, the speech, you know, you know, Bezalat Hashem, Mashiach, and all that. People always know the end of the speech. Right? You know, whatever it is, it goes out. You know, they say that. All of a sudden, they, oh, they're excited. And they leave out. The people, you want to show that you really wanted, you speak, stay that extra one minute. Open up a sefer. You're, you're finished praying. Instead of just rushing right out, say one parak of Tehillim. Show God, listen, I did what I had to do. I'm doing this now because I want to do it. It puts a personalization into it that makes it that makes it so worth so much more. The usually I never have to go so far for my dream. It's like <laughs> there's a, such much such a gap of time. Okay, so the I want to share with you something that Rabbi Mordechai Becher brings down in his book uh, Gateway to Judaism. He says, imagine somebody goes and decides he wants to be a vegetarian. 
He wants to become a vegetarian, meaning no meat. No, he, he's like so sick of people going and hurting the animals and the animals are suffering. He says, that's it. No more suffering for the animals. So he says, no, he cuts meat out of his diet. And he wakes up the, the next morning, says no more meat. And he looks at his shoes and he sees his shoes are made out of leather. So now he has to think, okay, am I going to get rid of these shoes now? It's leather, it's uh, animals, ah, you know. He says, you know what, <clears throat> I already bought it, the animal's already dead. Okay, I'll wear the shoes, but from now on, no more leather. And then he's putting on his pants and he sees his leather belt. And he says, okay, the same thing, okay, the animal's dead already, I bought the belt already, but from now on, no more leather belt. And he's, he's going through the process, and then he's, it's the, you know, he, it comes breakfast time and he's hungry. And he decides he's going to, uh, you know, he's going to go out to, to the restaurant to order some breakfast. He goes to the restaurant, he sits down over there, and he goes to the waiter and he says, uh, you know, waiter, what's, uh, you know, what do you recommend? The waiter says, you know, I'll give you, uh, I recommend steak and eggs. Obviously the story's not Jewish, you know, obviously because everyone would have been bagels and lox and cream cheese. But, um, it depends if you're Sparty, right, so the eggs, so, um, so he said, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to, uh, you know, he says, I recommend the steak and eggs over here is the best. So the guy said, listen, I would love to have the steak and eggs, but I'm a, you know, a newly vowed, uh, you know, vegetarian. I can't, I don't, I don't, the, I don't like the animal suffering. There's no more, I'm not eating any, anything that has a, that had a face in it or, you know, went through any suffering. So he said, listen, he says, you don't have to worry. He says, our animals, they come from Happy Valley Ranch. This is where, you know, there's no gates. The animals roam freely. They can eat as much as they want. There's so much beer for them to drink. They drink as much as they want. Every hour they get, a, they get every day they get a one hour massage, you know, and there's no criticism. They only get compliments. They could go and they don't get killed. They don't get killed over there. They don't get shechted over there. The second that they die, they get, they reach the right old age of whatever. They die. We bring them to the slaughterhouse and we chop them up and then we serve it. So no animals were hurt by this, uh, by this meat. He says, Okay, he says, in that case, uh, two please. You know, and he gets two steaks and eggs. He's eating it, it's delicious. He feels not, he doesn't feel guilty. Now he says, where am I ever going to find somewhere where I could buy such good, ste- you know, like steak that it never hurt an animal? So he started, you know, I was like, give me 10 to go. I'm going to put it in the freezer and save it for myself. He goes home, he puts it in his freezer. Now he realizes he has so much, he didn't have enough, you know, he didn't think of it properly. He says, he has, doesn't have a big freezer. He says, you know what, I have some extra room. Let me invite my friends over, we'll make a barbecue. He goes out, he invites his friends over, that night they all come over there, he fires up the grill, and he's about to take out the steak, and then he's starting to think, he says, you know what, he says, if I'm going to start eating the steak, and my friends are going to start eating the steak, and they're, tomorrow they're going to think about, about, oh, how awesome was that steak, then they're going to go to the supermarket, they're going to buy steak, but they're not going to buy from the Happy Valley Ranch that I bought it from. They're going to buy the regular steak that, you know, was brutally murdered at, you know, its prime of its life and so on and so forth. He says, you know, that this is a Hasid, you know what you're talking about? He's already thinking six steps ahead. He's like, what happens if it's going to be like this? It's going to be like, he says, you know what? I can't have it. No steak tonight. He throws all the meat out in the garbage. He feeds them, I don't know, corn, french fries, I don't know what it is, whatever it is. He feeds them something. And now it's ready night. Now it's ready night. Now he's hungry. He says he didn't, he didn't have any steak. He says, you know what? Let me go out into the, let me go out to the supermarket. Let me get something that's, you know, vegetarian friendly. So he goes to the supermarket. He's walking around the aisles. It's like, you know, he figures, I'll go to the dairy section. Dairy, you know, that, that's, you know, there's no animals harmed in that. He puts his wagon. He didn't know about this yet. So he puts his wagon. He drives, he travels to the dairy section and he starts putting in cheese and eggs and, and well, not eggs, cheese and, you know, all these different types of different dairy products. A woman passes by him and she says, uh, you must like dairy a lot, because all he had in his cart was dairy. And he says, to be honest, not really. He says, but I'm a vegetarian and I don't like harming animals. And this is the only thing that I have left to eat. 
And she's like, "Do you know how they get so much milk out of the cows?" He says, "As soon as the calf is born, and the calf, you know, once it finishes, you know, needing the mother's milk, they inject it with hormones, the mother, so that it will continue producing milk, so that it'll be able to continue using it." He says, "You know how many, you know, you know how much animals were harmed producing so much milk." He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah." He takes everything, puts it right back over there. You know, he's like, "What am I going to do?" And he's walking back and forth. He says, "You know what?" He's going to go and he's going to find a, uh, you know, protein, those protein bars. You know, those protein bars are like this big, they weigh about 15 pounds, taste like sand, right? They have like, so he goes and he's like, this is how I'll live. He takes a protein bar, starts piling, he says, you know, let me check the ingredients. He looks in the ingredients, he sees animal fat, he sees the, you know, the, there, there are certain dyes from the red beetle that they take from, you know, to, to make it, uh, uh, to, to make the red color. And he's like, you gotta be kidding me. He puts this back, and he's starting to cry. You know, he's like, you know how you get hungry and cranky. You know, he's like crying over here. Meanwhile, his phone rings. He answers his phone. It's his grandmother. His grandmother, who lives around the corner from the supermarket, he says, "Listen, he says, why don't you come over? You haven't visited me in a while. I'll make you some supper." And he's, he's like, you know what? Fine, grandma, I'll come visit you. You know, hangs on the phone, puts the empty shopping cart back, and depressed, he walks to his grandmother's house. He gets to his grandmother's house, and his grandmother just did smelled fried a delicious schnitzel for him. And he's sitting over there. Now he's thinking, you know, he's like, he's like, if I tell my grandmother that I that I can't eat, that's you know, that's like hitting your grandmother in the face with a fist, not a regular fist. You know, when you have those brass knuckles. Like if you go to your grandmother's house, your grandparents' house, and say, no, I'm not going to eat anything, that's like a death sentence over there. He's like, he's like, but he says, at one point, if I'm going to go and tell my grandmother that I'm not going to eat from her, from her, you know, from her food, I'm going to hurt her. But if I eat her food, then I'm hurting the animals. So now whose pain is more important, my grandmother's pain or the animal's pain? What is going to be more important? Now, this, imagine, we went through one day of this guy's life. Imagine what this guy is going to have to go through his entire life thinking as a vegetarian. He's going to have to make a lot of laws and regulations of what is allowed, what is not allowed, what is okay and what is not okay. Now imagine a whole nation together decides that they're going to go and they're going to all be vegetarians. They need a lot of, they're going to need something probably, we call it a Talmud maybe, I don't know. You know, they'll need a book of laws to describe to them what they need to do. So we look at our book of laws, we look at our, you know, we had 630 commandments. But, a commandment, let's say, be a vegetarian, is not enough to be a vegetarian. You have to know when can you be a vegetarian, when are you not going to be a vegetarian, what, what is okay, what is not okay. So, of course, the 613 really has more details for it, but that's just learning how to keep that single detail that, uh, that, that it originated from. So, the Maral asks, thank you, may be blessed with many, many blessings. So, easiest blessing to get, right? So, um, thank you. So, the Maral asks a question like this. The Maral asks, says, we know that if we, ha- the more commandments that we have, you should know that if you, if you have a positive commandment and you don't fulfill that positive commandment, that is a sin. You have to, if you, if you have a positive commandment, you have an obligation to fulfill that positive commandment. So, for example, you have to put on tefillin. If you don't pull on tefillin, that's a sin. That's not just enough to say, okay, I didn't do an extra thing. No, no, no. You went backwards. You did it, you did it, you did actual sin. So this is the Maral asks an interesting question. Wouldn't it make more sense to make less mitzvot, because this way it will be less of a chance that we would fall. If we have more mitzvot, we'll have more chances that we will fall. So maybe it will be better to put less mitzvot, I don't know, instead of 613, give us 300. Cut it in half, give us 300. This way we'll have 300 opportunities to do good things, but also 300 less, 313 less of a mitzvot to fall. Does the question make sense? Says the Maral, says that would make sense if, 
it would be a 50-50 chance if you're going to do the mitzvah, if you're not going to do the mitzvah. But each Jew, when they're created, when a Jew, a Jew is born, there is an affinity, there's an attraction to the mitzvah. Which means is they want to do the mitzvah. Inside, you're, you're connected to the mitzvah. You want to do the mitzvah. Sometimes we, you know, there's a blockage. And sometimes, you know, for some people, it's a wanting of a wanting to do a mitzvah. And some people, it's a wanting of a wanting to of a wanting to possibly ever want to do a mitzvah. And depending on how type of person you are and the level that you are. But deep down, for some people, really deep down, they want to be good people. So, says the Maharal, says, the more commandments that we have, the more opportunities that we have to grow, and it's not going to be more at the fall. No, because it's the opposite. We're more attracted to the growth that we have it. We have it. This is, um, the, um, there was once a wealthy merchant that, you know, his son was getting, you know, older, and he wanted to teach his son business. So he calls over his son, he says, listen, I'm going to give you, you know, he gave him a, you know, a stash of money, a nice amount of money. He says, go to the, your uncle lives in a far off province. Go over there. They have good merchandise over there. I want you to buy the merchandise, you know, learn the business ropes. Buy high, you know, well, don't do that. Buy low, sell high. Buy high, you know, whatever. If you're in bankruptcy, Florida, maybe. So he said, go and buy product and go and sell it, you know, in a different place for a price. I said, fine. He gives him the money, he makes a travel. He travels out there. He gets to his uncle. He gets to, he gets to the place where his uncle, he books into a hotel. He goes, he goes right over to his uncle to introduce, say, hi, I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm coming to do business. My father sent me and gave me some money. The uncle says, not a problem. He makes phone calls nonstop. He says the second that, that he hears about this, he calls the merchant and says, you don't understand, there's a wealthy guy that just came here. He wants to buy business. You better run over there to, you know, to, to sell your merchandise. And he calls everybody that he knows to go and, and, and sell merchandise to his, uh, to his nephew. The nephew goes back to his hotel room. He's back to his home. There's already a line of merchants out the door. They're sitting over there and he's like, wow. He says, okay. He goes, he opens it up. They're coming in and buy this and this and he's handling the prices and he's going back and forth. He's negotiating and he's there for three days. Day in and day out from morning until night. He's buying merchandise. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's negotiating. He's doing all these things. Finally, it comes to the point of time that he had no more money left. He bought everything that he, that he had the ability to buy. He only had enough money left now to get his, the trip back home. So he tells the merchant, says, I'm sorry, business is closed, I'm done, I have enough merchandise. And he goes to bid, you know, farewell to his uncle. He goes to his uncle, and his uncle says, so did you enjoy your visit in here? In this, you know, this, you never came to visit over here, it's a beautiful country, beautiful place, if you, you enjoy yourself. He says, to be honest, he says, I didn't have a second to myself. I didn't even have a chance to go and see the sights. I didn't have a chance to go and taste the food over here. I didn't have a chance for anything. So the uncle smiled and says, I know. He says, I did that on purpose. He says, I know your personality. And he says, and if you would have gone, and if you would have, you know, hung around a little bit, he says, you would have gone over here, and then you would have found the painting, and you'd be like, oh, the art over here is, you know, and, and then you would have taken this, then you would have bought the food over here, then you would have souvenir over here. Before you know it, you would have been out of money without any merchandise. He says, that's why I kept you busy from morning until night, that you didn't have the opportunity to go and, and enjoy the land, because I knew if you would, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have, uh, uh, be able to buy any merchandise. Says the Dubba Magan. He says that God knows us. God knows each and every one of us. And God says there's 630 commandments. You realize the second that you finish one commandment, there's another commandment you gotta do. The second you finish that, there's another one you gotta do. I'll be like, God, just give me five minutes of rest, please, for crying out. Just give me. God says, I know you. He says, if I would let you rest, if I wouldn't give you all these commandments, then what would you do? We know the purpose of life is not to just sit over here and do business and go on vacations. That's not the purpose of life. There's more to us. The purpose of life is that we should do the commandments, that we get closer to God. For ultimately, the real purpose of this world is for the next world. And says God, if I would have given you a few commandments, if I would have cut in half and given you 300 commandments, then you would have wasted some time over here, wasted some time over here. And before you know it, 120 comes and you would come up there with no, no merchandise with you. Says the Dobermagen, says that's why God gave us so many commandments. He gave us so many commandments because He knows us and He knows our ability. He says He didn't want us to waste a second. We're not wasting a second. Now we're going to know we're going to be able to buy good merchandise. 
the Rambam goes and says that this is something very important because the Rambam says that it's, it is important that every Jew is knowledgeable and learns all the 613 commandments. Even though you know, you realize, majority of the commandments is not applicable to us. Says the Rambam, still it's important that each and every Jew goes and learns, and learns these commandments. And the question is why? Why is it so important for whoever was not a Kohen? Why is it so important to learn all these commandments? So, the Pasuk in, in Bereshit, in Genesis, goes and says that when, in, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says that when God created the world, and the, there was no trees, you know, after, before Adam HaRashon was created, the entire world looked at, like a desert. And what happened was, is that when Adam HaRashon was born, he looked, he saw there was nothing, he prayed to God for rain, and all of a sudden it rained, and everything shot up instantly. So all the trees, everything shot up instantly. The question is, why is it that God waited until all of a sudden, until all the, that Adam Rishon was, till, till, you know, till he, he goes and, and he prays and he, and he brings the rain and all the trees spread out. Says the Pasuk, it says that, the, that, and I'll quote for you, no tree of the field was yet on the earth. And why? Because God did not bring rain because there was no man to work the soil. Says the Zohar, what does it mean no man to work the soil? To work it through the commandments, through the obligations. You know, Adam had one. Adam had, you know, don't eat from the, you know, from the Etzadas. But the Zohar says that we way that we work the land is through the Zohar. Says the, the, says the Gemara. The Gemara in Chulim, page 60b says that God waited specifically for Adam Alishon to pray. Once he prayed for rain, that's when God made everything rain and that's when God made everything, everything sprout. The Nefesh Chaim brings down, it says that when you do a commandment, when you do a mitzvah, it doesn't only affect you, it affects the universe. It affects the world. So people like to think, be like, okay, listen, I'll do a mitzvah, I'll do a sin, it'll affect me, what's the big deal? No, 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 it doesn't work like that. When you do a positive commandment, when you do a negative commandment, it affects the world around you. Forget about the fact that it affects each and every one of us, because we're all connected, each and every Jew is connected to, you know, to each other. But besides that, it's, it affects the world. Where do we see this? In Noah, in the flood. It says when Noah, when the, when the people in the generation of Noah, when they sinned, the, the, the earth itself was, was impure. That's why the whole, the whole world was put into a, a mikveh. The whole world had to be, that's why it was hot water, and it was the whole, everything had to be covered. Everything had to be, everything had to be dipped inside the water. Why? Because the earth in itself was, was, uh, uh, the, there was an impurity in it that leaked in from the, from the, from the men causing their sins. Now, so we know that mitzvot have an effect on a, has an effect on the world, but it also has an effect on you. We know there's 613 commandments. There is 365 negative commandments. This is a very famous idea. This is corresponding to the ligaments of a person's body. There's 248 positive commandments, and these are corresponding to the organs of the body. Now, what happens is that when you do a positive commandment, you are, what you're doing is you're infusing that organ with life force. It's like spiritual life force. When you're doing a sin, that's taking out the life force from that organ. And every mitzvah has a different organ that is associated with it. When doing something, you're to either you're either nurturing it or you're either starving it and pulling it. That's why the Gemara in Barchot, page 18b says, Wicked people, while they're alive, they're considered dead. Why are they considered dead? Why is the Gemara said they're dead? They're alive. They're walking around, they're doing their sins, they're going and they're causing problems. Why are they considered dead? They're considered dead because their life source is dead. They didn't nourish their soul. They didn't nourish their, their, their 248 positive, their, their limbs, their organs. And they didn't, they didn't nourish the 368 ligament, 365 ligaments. So they're dead in a sense that they did not nourish the, their spiritual life force. This is how we understand the Midrash, Tanchuma and Pasha Tazria, with Rabbi Akiva and Ternus Rufus. The, what happened was is that this, um, Ternus Rufus, 
goes over to Rabbi Akiva and he goes and he says to, and he says to him, what's better? Deeds of man or deeds of God? He asked him that type of question. A very famous midrash. And, you know, so if you're on the level of Rabbi Akiva, you realize he's not asking, he's asking, you know, there's a follow-up question going on over there. And Rabbi Akiva realized that there's a follow-up question up going up over there. So he said the, God, the deeds of man are greater. You know, this like shook him up. Be like, oh, you know, like he had a whole plan. You know, when you're in an argument and I'm like, okay, she's going to say this and I'm going to say this and I'm going to say this. And then, and you have like a whole list of things. And you're like, and you know what? And I can't believe it. And she's like, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> But I have a whole chart of stuff that I was going to explain to you why you're wrong. And it all just like, ruined it. So like if you go a step before you a few steps ahead, Rabbi Akiva saw a few steps ahead. All of a sudden, Rabbi Akiva's going. And he says, the deeds of man are greater than, than, uh, than God. So Turner Fufa says, huh, what are you talking about over here? How do you say such a thing? Man's deeds are greater than God's? Are you kidding me? How is that even possible? So Rabbi Akiva goes and brings him two things. He brings him, on one hand, he brings him a cake. On the other hand, he brings him kernels of wheat. He says, hey, uh, which one do you want to eat? You want to eat the cake or you want to eat the kernels of, of, of wheat? So he had to admit that what's better, really the deeds of man are better because you're not going to eat the kernels of wheat, you're going to eat the cake that's made by man, that it's crushed up the kernels, made into the flour, and turned into yada, 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 and so on and so forth. Those are the deeds of man. Turner's roof is still said, no, 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 okay, fine. You know what? Why did, if God created you uncircumcised, why are you going uncircumcising yourself? You, are you, do you know better than God? If God created you one way, stay that way. Why are you going out of it? So Rabbi Kiva answers and says that God gave us the mitzvot so that we should be able to benefit, we should be able to fix ourselves. We fix ourselves. What does that mean that, that we fix ourselves, perfect ourselves and perfect the world? The idea is that um, we know, for example, using circumcision, the, the word that's used for circumcision is ola. Ola is like the extra skin. There's another time that the Torah speaks about Allah is by Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vani sfatayim. He says, my lips are blocked. When he was talking to God, and God said to Moshe, Moshe, why don't you go and get the Jews out? He says, I can't. I have a speech impediment, says Moshe Rabbeinu to God. They're not going to listen to me. The word that he uses is Arel, like Allah, the same, the, same, uh, the same root of it. The reason is because Allah is like a blockage. There's a blockage. God created, yeah, God created you with a specific blockage. And you're going to go and you're going to fix that blockage because that's the purpose of what you need to do. You fix it. You fix it and hence you're elevating yourself. You're elevating, you're, you're elevating the world. And that's what happens with circumcision as well. It's not saying that God's world is deficient, but what you're doing is, is that you're enhancing it because you're becoming a part of it. Now, so now we have an interesting question that we need to ask. So there is 613 commandments. Each commandment corresponds to a different part of the body. Now we have a big problem. Is nowadays, there is a lot of commandments that are not applicable. How are we going to go and fix all that part of our body that is not going to be applicable? And put it here, look at, listen to this. There is... I don't remember where I wrote, wrote this. Okay, say it by heart. There is... Out of, out of the 613 commandments, how many things do you think are applicable nowadays? 40. 40? Oh, that was a really low blow. Yeah, a little bit higher. Huh? 200 something. So there's there is three hundred two right so okay so there's three hundred and sixty nine that's yeah there's three hundred and sixty nine that is applicable nowadays but a majority of them is only under special circumstances what is applicable now what is applicable to everybody nowadays is roughly about two seventy two seventy one two seventy if what oh you meant forty percent oh yeah <laughs> that's how you know you're Jewish okay so. In any case, we're, we're, instead of the 613, we cut it less than half. 40%, right? We cut, it, we, cut it less, we, cut, we cut it so low, so now 
we could say, when people go and they say, oh, what are you going to do with all these commandments? Okay, relax. We don't have so many commandments. We don't have 613. We have 200 and change, 200, 270 and change. So all of a sudden it makes, now the question's not going to be a bug. Well, still too much. It's like, okay, whatever. You know, like, you know, keep the Ten Commandments. You know, well, don't say that because that uh, doesn't want the, not, not good advice. Um, the, so now what we have to understand is, does that mean that we're deficient? That if we cannot fix and, and work on our 630 commandments, that means parts of our organs, parts of our body, parts of our ligaments are not being healed, they're not being fixed. We don't have the spiritual energy, so what are we going to do? So if you look at the, the Gemara, Megillah, page 31b, and the Gemara in Tanit, page 27b, Avraham Avinu had a conversation with God. And Avraham Avinu goes and says, you know, he says, he says to God, He says, it says Avraham to God, he says, God forbid that the Jewish people are going to go in the future and they're going to sin in front of you and then you're going to give them like the marble, the flood. They're going to go and destroy the, you know, the, them, the whole world, you're going to destroy them. Says God, he says, he says, I already, he says, He says, I have, they have kobanot. They have, they have kobanot that they're able to, if somebody does a sin, they go into the Bet HaMikdash, and they do a korban, and it heals a sin. Says Avraham, that's nice and dandy, but what's going to be when the, when the, when the, you know, when the Bet HaMikdash is not, no, no longer here? What are they going to do then? They can't bring korbanot. Says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kol Zman Shekorin Behem. Whenever they read the korbanot, it's, it's Ke'ilu Makrivin Lefanai. When they read the korbanot, it says, if they went and they gave it before me, which means is that, in nowadays, we don't have the ability, we don't have the opportunity to go and bring a korban. By us reading the korbanot, it's as if we gave the korban. So now we said that we're lacking in certain things. Now, there's a way, there's a way out. Says the Gemara. Says the way that is if you, is if you go and you read it. Now the question is like this. Is it enough to read it? Can you just read it through it? Do you have to know it? Do you have to understand it? Do you have to study it? So let me quote for you a few sources really quickly on to understand this concept because uh, it's very, very important. Rabbeinu Bachai says that it counts as when you say it, but you have to say it with kavanah. You have to concentrate. You know, some people, they're praying and then they, you know, they finish praying and they don't realize how they even got there. Or like sometimes you're praying and the pages start spinning and then you're like, oh, where was I up to? You know, you don't know where to turn anymore. I'll be like, yeah, probably up to where this guy's up to. You know, you turn around over here. So that's not Kavanah. Kavanah means that you're going and you're concentrating and you know what you're talking about. You're saying it with, with concentration. That's what Rabbeinu Bechai says. Says the Shlach HaKadosh. And Devarim Deuteronomy. Chapter 30, verse 14. It says, Bilvavecha means that you have to have Kavanah. You have to have concentration in the same thing. You have to have it in your heart, meaning that you understand what you're saying. The Yad Ephraim goes a step further. It says not only that you have to have it with concentration, you have to understand what you're saying. The Chafetz Chaim goes and says on the Gemara Menachot, page 110a, it says that whoever, it says whoever is Osek, whoever is Osek, means whoever is learning in Torah Chatas, it says if he gave a Chatas. He said, if you gave a Koban Chatat, meaning that it's not enough to just read it. It's not enough to understand it. You have to learn it. You have to understand it in depth of it. And the Ben Yishchai says this also. It says that we, a person can keep all the 613 commandments if they go and they learn it. The, now the question is, so this is really speaking about Kobanot. This is speaking about Kobanot. Does this apply? So we just gave you the Ben Yishchai. But where can we prove, where can we say that this also applies to all the 613 commandments? Because there's many commandments. For example, a Kohen... You know, for, uh, let's leave it this way. Israel can't take what Bukharin over here, right? So everyone call him? Every single person here is calling him, right? No? Okay. So when you're, when you're going and when you're, you know, if you're a Kohen, you cannot keep up of, of, of what Israel does. Or if you're a Kohen, you can't keep up with Levi. If you're a man, you can't keep up with a woman. So the man, you know, so on and so forth. There's so many stuff you can't keep. Can you, does that still apply that if you learn the mitzvot, does it still count as if you, as if you did it? The Taz says in 
the, uh, in the Pasuk in Bereshit, chapter 32, verse 5. It says, Yaakov Vinu says, Im Lavan Galti. It says Rashi over there. What does it mean, Im Lavan Galti? I lived with Lavan. Galti, if you switch the words around, it also spells Talyag. Talyag is 613. It says, Im Lavan Galti, I lived with Lavan, but Talyag mitzvah shemalti. But I kept the 613 commandments. Now the question is how? How could Yaakov keep the 613 commandments? They weren't given yet. The Torah wasn't given yet. How was he keeping the 613 commandments? First of all, how could he keep, was he a Kohen, a Levi, Israel, a woman, and a man? You know, nowadays, yeah, some people are everything, right? Because they're, they're transgender, old gender, whatever it is, they're putting everything together. But, regular, you can't go and keep all the mitzvot. There's no way. So how does it say that Yaakov kept all the 613 commandments? So it says the Taz, and says that, what, what it means is, is that he was also in it. He learned it. And he was able to learn it. He was able to de- de- derive what the commandments were going to be given. And he was able to learn it. By learning it, and not even doing it, by learning it, he was able to go and it counts as if he kept the Talyag Mitzvot. The... It's going to be a little bit late. Okay. The Sefer Tam Vedas of Moshe Sternbach goes and says like this. And says... On the Pasuk in Genesis chapter 32 verse 5, the same one, it says that, it says that, Vitayag mitzvah shamati. I, I, what is shamati? Shamati means guarded. It's like the idea, we have Yaakov Avinu. When Yosef went, when Yosef went and told Yaakov Avinu about his dream, it says, Va'aviv shamarat adavah. What does that mean? He guarded it. He yearned for it. He wanted it for it to happen. He was waiting for it to happen. He yearned it. What does it mean with Shamati? Shamati means that, that when it says that, that Yaakov Inu, Tayag Mitzvah Shamati, I, I guarded, I watched the Tayag Mitzvah, means that he yearned it. He wanted to go and, and, and do the 613 commandment. But we know there's a very, very interesting concept in Judaism, that if you want to do something, I mean, it's beyond your ability to do it, it's counted as if you did it. So if you have an opportunity that comes into you, or if you don't have the opportunity, but you really, really want to do the mitzvah, but what can you do? You can't. You really, really want to build the yeshiva. And if you had the money, God knows that you would go and pay for it. But you can't. You don't have the money now. So it counts as if you did it. it which means as if you're trying to do something. But it's beyond your reach to do it. It counts as if you, if you did it. So we so far said two things. And how you go. And number one, if you learn the mitzvot, it's counted as if you did it. Number two, if you yearn to do the mitzvot, you want to do the mitzvot, it also counts as if you did it. Number three, you could also go. And if you encourage and assist other people to do mitzvot, it also counts as if you did it. That's right, husband and wife, they could share the mitzvot. The, hu- the wife goes and says to the husband, go learn Torah, go learn Torah. And, she, and you know, the husband says, oh, okay, now I want you to go buy modest clothes, I'll pay you, you know, go, here's the extra thousand uh, dollars, you know, depending on whoever living here, five thousand dollars, five hundred dollars, I don't know, I see different faces, so whatever it is. <laughs> whatever the price level is, here's the money, go buy more modest clothing. Go buy this. So they're going over here and they're helping and they're encouraging and they're assisting others, so you get the mitzvah, you get the mitzvah together. So that is how we go and we're able to uh, we're able to nourish our our body, our soul, with mitzvot that we don't have the ability to go and to um, and to accomplish. Now, there's something very interesting. Says the Shemesh Mul on, on, uh, in Shavuot, he goes and says something like this. He says that the luchot they were six tfachim long. So this is a tefach. So it was six of these long. It says two tfachim Moshe Rabbeinu was holding, two tfachim God was holding, and the middle was left with ear. Now, what does that mean? Says the Shemesh Mul. It says. Anything, any action, any mitzvah that you do, mitzvah or sin, you can break it down to three categories. It's either one or a combination of these three categories. It's either action, thought, or speech. Mitzvah, sin, anything is either a combination or a, or, or, you know, or a single one of those. I'll give you an example. For example, the, um, you have the, the thought you have to believe in God, right? That is something that, that, it's a one, there's one God that has happened in your thought. 
in action, for example, you have lulav, you have etrog, you have matzah, you have, you know, the, you have the four cups of wine. These are things that are action. Then you have speech. You have to, there's, there's an obligation. They have to, you know, verbally remember the Shabbat, for example. You have an obligation not to say lashonara. This is based off the speech. All the mitzvot are either a combination or a single one of these things. Now, an action is 100% in a person's realm. He can decide whatever he wants to, you know, to do, and he's going to go and he's going to do it. The thought, on the other hand, is like beyond the, the grasp of even. Have you ever thought about this? Um, if you, you could only conjure up thoughts, you could make yourself think certain things, but you can't prevent unwanted thoughts from coming in. There's sometimes, and for example, if I just tell you right now, a ball of fire rolling down a mountain that is snowing. So some of you will like sort of like picture that because I could just introduce thoughts into your into your head without you wanting. Like no, I don't want to think about it. And the more that you try not to think about it, you're going to be thinking about it, right? So that, oh, like, no, I'm not. He doesn't want to talk about. It. I'm not thinking about a rolling ball of fire. You know, like the more you try not to, the more you're actually going to go and you're going to do it. Why? Because thoughts is beyond our realm. We could control our actions, but our thoughts is very difficult to control. What about speech? Speech works in the in-between status. Says the Pasuk in Mishle, chapter 16, verse 1, it says, La'adam ma'akelev, for a man, the preparations of, uh, are in the heart, but but the tongue answers from God, which means you could prepare, you're going to say something, and you're going to go over there, and you have your whole thing, and you're, you know, you come, and you're stumbling over your words, and you don't know what you're saying, you're like mumbling, and you could have like a whole presentation set up. And you're going to come, everything is perfect, you come over there, and you flop the whole thing. Why? You started speaking fast, you started speaking slow, you started speaking this, blah, blah. Yeah, it, God, you could control it, but at the end of the day, God, the tongue answers from God. But, says the Shemishmuel, says, this is what it meant by Moshe Rabbeinu was holding to to uh, Tfachim. God was holding to Tfachim, and the middle Tfachim was, was in the ear. Moshe was holding to Tfachim, that is resembling action. Those are things action, because that's in human realm. God was holding the thought, the thought process, because that is not in our realm. But then there was a speech in the middle. The speech is sort of like the in-between stage. Says the Pasuk in Mishlei. You go to Pasuk in Mishlei, chapter 16, verse 3. It says, Galel Hashem If you commit your affairs to God, and your thoughts will be established. Meaning, you want to control your thoughts? The trick is to get control of your actions. When you commit your actions to God, God is going to give you the control of also of, your, of the thoughts as well. This is why... There's an idea that what happened was that the, you know there's the midrash is very interesting that when the Jewish people sinned, God wanted to sort of grab away the luchot, but Moshe grabbed it back. What does that mean? That means is that God said, "Look, you, you messed up an action." He says, "I gave you one part that you have action." He says, "Now that you messed it up, I got to take it away." He says, "No, Moshe, Rabbi, no, 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 we could do chupa." And he grabs it back and says, "The action is bottom line. That's where we're able to base it off. Everything is an action." What we see over here is that everything, everything bases is based off action. This will make now a lot of sense. Why the Jewish people, when they got the Torah, what did they say? Na'aseh v'nishma. We will do and we will listen. Na'aseh means action. So they realize that, they realize the level, they realize that what it is, it's only by the action. It's only by the, the that's where you have the ability to change. We will do and then we will listen. Now, now we understand a little bit why there's so many commandments. There's so many commandments we're using our action for doing. And granted, there's commandments and everything, but the majority of the things that we're dealing with, with are very, very actionable things. Even learning Torah. There's a lot of action that is involved in it. The, when you think about it like this, the, there's an idea that if, let's say, somebody is really, really wicked, but they just do good deeds all day, eventually they're going to become good. But let's say somebody is really, really, really good inside, is really thinking good things, but he's doing wicked things all day, eventually he's going to come, he's going to come wicked. The deeds, the actions affect who you are. They affect, they affect what's going on. That God gave us so many commandments that we don't have time to think, because we started off with saying that, you know what God gave us the commandments? To make us better people. To make us better people. Well, things that you don't realize, says Rabbeinu Bachai, says that 
a mitzvah has an inner aspect and an and a, and a outer aspect. So more of a hidden one and more of a revealed one. So when you do a commandment, so the mitzvah itself, you did the commandment, that's very good. But there's an inner cosmic effect that it actually changes who you are. You don't even realize it. You put on tefillin, it changes who you are. You become a better person. You dress modestly, you become a better person. It's weird. It actually fit, puts it inside of you. I've spoken to people that, for example, they stopped listening to non-Jewish music, English music. And they said after a certain point, they felt different. They, they, they felt different. It was weird. It's like they felt completely de- like a different person. The, the answer is because it changes who you are. So when we said that it become, you become a better person, many people think, I'll become a good person. I'll do the right thing. I can, what's wrong with being an atheist and being a good person at the same point in time? So when you're doing the mitzvot, it's changing who you are as a person. You're no longer, you're changing instead of looking at the rights and the obligation. You're no longer a person who does a good deed. You are, your essence is, I am going to do a good deed. And you're looking for the good deeds to do, not waiting for them to come. You understand the difference of what we're speaking about? So, this is, now we can understand, and we're finishing up shortly. Now we can understand the reason why rabbis went so above and beyond when dealing with mitzvot. There was a rabbi in, um, in Syria, that, before ISIS, uh, this is pre-ISIS, he, uh, he went there and he was going through the shuk. The shuk is like the marketplace. And he was going in the, in the marketplace, and the, he saw there, it was the day before Hashanah Rabbah. Hashanah Rabbah is when we take the, you know, the Aravot, and we let out all our frustration on the, you know, you, know, you have over there people. <coughs> you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The Aravot, you smack on the floor. You have some people, you're supposed to do it five times. But sometimes they get such healthy ones, that they're, seriously, they're like, Phew. you know, you see, that this is like wrestling. They're jumping off chairs, and they're like, Phew. they're putting it on the floor, because they want to get as much as they can. It's five times that all you need to do it. And people think that you go, and what do you do? You're going to go, and you're going to release all your anger of the thing. Like, I spend so much money on this stuff, and I can't believe I can still do this. And why are we even smacking on the floor? It makes absolutely no sense. You know, you're doing, you're letting all your anger, you know, on these things, and you take it out. This is, day before Hashanah Rabbah. He's going, and by the way, the lulav and the trog and the adasim and aravot, when you're shaking it, Roshan Rabbah is the last day. So it's the day before the last day. He's going, this, this big rabbi, he's going and he's walking in the marketplace. He's going, he wanted to buy aravot to, you know, to snack on the floor. And he's going, and he goes and he finds, uh, uh, you know, this vendor. And uh, the vendor is selling aravot, but also inside he has some etrogim over there. So he's going, he's looking over there. He finds one etrog that's beautiful. He's never seen such a beautiful etrog before. It's like, there's, everything is so amazing, so perfect. And he's like, wow, this must be worth so much money. And he's like, you know, I gotta have it. So he takes out his wallet, he starts counting big bills out. So he figures it's worth, you know, a few hundred, I don't know what it is. So the, the merchant tells him, says, Rabbi, he says, I can't, he says, tomorrow this is gonna be worth 50 cents. He says, I can't charge you for one day mitzvah, come on, you can't. Says the rabbi, what are you talking about? He says, this is worth everything for that one day mitzvah. Many people think, okay, it's coming towards the end of the mitzvah, so okay, what's the big deal? I don't need to spend so much anymore. The thing's over here. Says the rabbi, no, no, no. Over here, it's worth so much. What's the difference if I'm doing it once and I'm doing it seven times? It doesn't make a difference. And he went and he paid full price for that. He paid full price because he knew the value of the mitzvah. The mitzvah changes who you are. It nourishes your spirituality. It nourishes your physical aspect as well. I want to finish off with one uh, final story. The, there's a true story that happened in Israel. <clears throat> the, there was a person who was in charge of... He worked in a bank and he was in charge of the safe deposit box. And he, over there at the beginning of the story, he brings down very, very interesting you know, stories on you know, what, what you have to deal with the safe deposit box because it's a lot of privacy. You know, a person comes in there, you have one key, he has the other key, and you go over there and you go to a room and you do God knows whatever you want to the box, you put whatever limbs you want in there, and then you go back over there, no one looks, no one asks any questions, government doesn't ask any questions usually, and uh, they, put it, uh, they put it back inside over there. So part of the thing is you can't ask any questions. You know, people come, people you know, are very odd, very interesting, but you know, part, of the, part of the deal is the privacy. One day he walks in and he says the story, when he was saying the story, four years ago this happened. He says that four years ago there was a known beggar 
that walked into the bank. He wanted to open up a safe deposit box. He had the money. So they can't ask any questions. You know, you know, the full beggar outfit, BO, you know, ripped clothes, the, the, the full spiel. And he goes and he wants to open up a safe deposit box. You know, was the beggar going to put it? All right, fine. Yeah, you know, he had the money. He put it, you know, they, and they opened up a safe deposit box. The beggar goes, he goes into the room, puts something inside, comes out and says, I want a deposit over here. Fine. They deposit about it. The next day, the beggar walks in, bright and early, right when they open up, and he says, I would like to withdraw something from my safety deposit box. So he says, fine. They take it out. They sign. You know, they do the whole spiel. And he leaves. A few hours later, he comes back, and he says, I want to deposit something in the safety deposit box. He says, okay. He goes back again, back and forth. This happened day in and day out for four years. Four years is how every single day that the bank was open. Now, this guy was going out of his mind. He's like, what is this guy doing? And he started thinking, you know, it's like, you know, you have time in your hand when you're working in the state of the right? So he's going over there and he's thinking, he's like, he says, if you're, if this guy is going and he's depositing, maybe, you know, at the end of the day, I understand that he comes back to the bank. He deposits whatever he collected. He went and he, uh, you know, and deposited back into the bank. But what is he taking out in the morning? What did he take me out in the morning that he needs to come here early in the morning? And it bothered him, but he, you know, whatever, he couldn't say anything. This goes on for four years. All of a sudden, like any good union, they decide to go on strike. They go on strike, and the bank is closed. And the beggar gets up over there. He walks into the bank, and he sees the bank is closed. So he's like, I need to, you know, I need to get, I need to get to my, to my safe deposit box. So, you know, I'm sorry, the bank is closed. There's nothing to talk about. So uh, he goes, and again, this story can only happen in Israel because I don't know how. He, get, he calls up the guy in the house. The guy who was in charge of the safe deposit box, he calls him up and he says, hi, you know, this is uh, Shmuel the beggar. I don't think he calls himself Shmuel the beggar, whatever. I don't think he's, uh, you know, he says, hey, this is Shmuel, I come for you every day. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, um, I need to get my safe deposit box open. I need to take something out. So the guy who's in charge of the, you know, the safe deposit says, I don't know if you are aware of it, but it's a, uh, it's a strike. Strike means we don't work. I, I can't. And he says, please, it's very imperative. I really need to go. I really need to go take something out. It's very imperative. Please, can you open it? And the guy says, that doesn't work that way. I can't. You know, even if I wanted to, I couldn't help you. And then they're arguing back and forth. They're on the phone for quite some time. Back and forth. Please, I need it. No, I can't. I need it. I need it. I need it. Back. Finally, the beggar says, you know what? I'm coming to visit you. Click. Now, again, only in Israel. Because 20 minutes later, he gets a knock on his front door. How did he find this information? I don't know. But he got it. <laughs> he goes. He opens up. Oh, the beggar's over there. And he says, and, and the guy says, listen, I told you again, I told you before, I can't. The beggar changed his tone. He said, listen, he says, I understand your situation. He says, let me at least tell you my story. And then you could decide for yourself. So this piqued his interest. So he says, you know what, okay, fine, come in. He brings him in, he puts it down, you know, by the table, gives him a, you know, a glass of drink. And uh, the beggar starts telling a story. He says, you know, he came from the Holocaust. And when he was in the Holocaust, he got very close to a Hasidic Rebbe, a very big rabbi that was in the Holocaust also. Now, he didn't grow up in a Hasidic, you know, environment, but he became very, very attached to this rabbi. You know, it just everything about this rabbi attracted him to him. And he became very attached to it. One day, the, um, one of the rabbi's helpers, was asking people around if they have a pure tefillin. The rabbi, whatever tefillin hat was, he wasn't able to put it on anymore, whatever he used until this point. Now he was asking if anybody else was able to smuggle in a tefillin. Now, most people did not have tefillin. People that did have a tefillin, they did not want to tell other people, they kept it hidden because, you know, if somebody was found with wearing tefillin, that's like a death sentence. So, they were going, they were asking around, and everybody either said no or, or no. And finally they go to him, and says, do you have a, a bending chance of pure tefillin? The rabbi wants to do it. He says, yeah, I actually, I actually do. And he goes and he gets it and he says, here, you can give it to the rabbi. And he says, excellent. So the rabbi helper says, listen. He says, we'll meet here at later this, you know, this evening and I'll return the tefillin to you. He says, fine, good. 
He goes, he gives them tefillin, they both part their ways. A few hours go by, and the, the beggar and his crew, whoever he was with, they got, all of a sudden they, they got a new, a new order that they had to go to build a railroad in a far out place. And they were transported to a far out place. Now, unfortunately, the way, you know, the, in, the, in the concentration camps, you didn't work from, you know, 9 to 5, and then you had breaks, and they worked from morning until night, and then they didn't want to waste time bringing them back to the bunk, so they slept outside. They slept outside until they finished, and then they, until they finished the project. So he was stuck there for a few weeks. He finally gets back, so he wasn't able to make the rendezvous point with, uh, you know, with the rabbi's, you know, assistants to go bring back his, his tefillin. He comes back a few weeks later, and the people around him says, you know, the rabbi's students and the rabbi's himself, he kept on coming around. They were looking for you and they were looking for you. And we said, listen, they got, they got transported. They got moved. I don't know. We don't know where they went. So the rabbi was thought maybe, you know, you, you know, we all thought maybe you were gone already. Usually when you leave, you don't come back. So the rabbi took your name and, you know, and, but he, you know, but they kept on asking you, maybe go over there, see if you can find them. You know, they, they do want to give you something. She says, yeah, I know what it's about. He says, not a problem. And he goes and he, and he makes his way to the rabbi's uh, section. And when he gets to the rabbi's section, he realized that just a few days prior to that, the rabbi got shipped somewhere else. So what are you going to do? He didn't have that and he forgot about the whole, the whole idea. After they, um, after they were liberated from the concentration camp, he uh, decided he lost his entire family. His entire, he was the only sole survivor that he decided he was going to make an aliyah. He was going to go to Eretz Israel. He was going to go to Israel. And in Israel, part of the package was that he got to Israel, he gets a small apartment, and you get a little stipend, a little money to spend. And uh, uh, because of all the trauma that he went through, he was, you know, he was, you know, went a little bit out of his mind a little bit, and he had to be admitted into a psychiatric unit. And he was there from 1948 until mid-1950s. Until one day he gets a letter from America. And the letter from America says, is this so-and-so? And then he starts saying, did you at one point give your rabbi, this rabbi your tefillin back in the concentration camp, in this concentration camp? And he looks at it and he brings it back and he says, yeah, that actually is me. And he writes back and says, yeah, that is actually me. And, you know, you know, corresponds back and forth. Finally, he gets a letter back and he says, you know, this is the rabbi that took it. He says, I want to return your tefillin. He says, please, you know, make, I want to, I want you to bring you into America. I want to go and want to make a whole, you know, think about it. Uh, you know, please come. And the guy says, you know, he told him the situation. He's in the psychiatric unit. The rabbi goes and from that day on, he kept on getting visitors almost daily. The rabbis, the rabbis, um, the rabbis, you know, Hasidim would come from that area. They would go and they would go visit him. And because of the, of the visiting that he came, it helped him, it helped him so much that a few weeks later, he got discharged from the hospital. He got discharged from the hospital, the rabbi went, sent him a ticket to fly to, uh, to America. He comes into America, and they make a whole thing about it. They put, they, all the Hasidim come to the synagogue, and they make a big meal out of it, and then the rabbi says a big speech, and then, you know, says what happened, and then he's presenting the tefillin, and he goes to him, and he tells him, he says, listen, he says, when you are gone, and I couldn't return this anymore, he says, I didn't know what to do with the tefillin. He says, I didn't want to leave it without an order, so this were my personal tefillin that I used to, for the past, you know, X amount of years, until now I could finally return it to you. He says, it wasn't the dry eye in the room. Everybody was crying, everybody was it. And he says, you know, and here's the, the tefillin, he says that I wanted, because of the, of the thing that you did to me, you could stay here, we'll cover everything that you need. You're welcome to stay here as much as you want. And the guy says, I appreciate your offer. He says, my home is in Israel. He says, I, I need to go back. He stays there a short while later, and then he makes his way back to, to Israel. He gets to Israel, he doesn't feel 100% yet. He goes, he checks himself back into the psychiatric unit. He stands there, you know, a short amount of time until he feels he's better. He goes out, and then he goes out into the real world, and, you know, Unfortunately, the only thing that he was left for him to pick up as a profession was, was begging. And he would beg for money. And that's what he would do. And this is, this is the story that the beggar is telling the guy who runs the, um, the, the safe deposit boxes. And he says, you know, for the past, you know, X amount of time, says, 
this was my prized possession. These tefillin that the rabbi was able to use, that the rabbi took from the Holocaust. The rabbi, he says, these were my prized possession. He says, four years ago, my home was broken into. They stole everything. And he says, I didn't really care, you know, the money. I didn't have that much. I didn't really care for what they stole. He says, but they could have stole my tefillin. He says, that I couldn't have it. He says, from that day on, I decided I'm depositing into the safe deposit box. He says, every morning I come in, and I take out the tefillin, and I put it on. In the evening, before I put it, I close it, I back in the safe deposit box, because I can't have it stolen. He says, now you see my situation, and now you can see why I need to, to have it. I, don't, I didn't put on tefillin yet today. Please, please, can you go get it and help me put on this, this tefillin? The guy says, you know, with his tears choking, he says, give me a sec. He made a few phone calls. Needless to say, you know, the safe deposit box was, was open. Like I said, the story happened in Israel, so this could all very well be. And the, he goes over there, and now he's started building a connection with this, you know, with this guy. It happens his name, his name was Shmuel. This, uh, you know, the Shmuel the beggar, he happened to build a connection. Now, when Shmuel would come at the end of the day, sometimes they would sit and they would chat and they would speak to each other and they would, you know, discuss different things. And they became close to the point that he started inviting the beggar into his house for, you know, for Shabbat meals and for Yom Tov meals, and they started getting close. Years go by, and they have a very, very close relationship. Suddenly, one morning, Shmuel doesn't show up for his tefillin, and he realized there's something going on over here. He says, what's going on? Why? Something is wrong. It was coming, it was past noon over there. He calls his friend and says, listen, this is this guy's address. Please go check on it. Something is off. His friend goes into the apartment and he realized something was off. Shmuel returned his soul to his maker. And that's why he didn't come to show up to get his tefillin. So they called him back and he started arranging. He called the chassidim. He called the rabbi from America. They arranged, they arranged with all the, the chassidim to make a funeral. In Israel, they, they go, you know, with the, this is known as a met mitzvah. It's a, you know, a funeral that he doesn't have any family. He doesn't have anything. They would go around in the street and microphone and announce if anybody's able to join in this mitzvah of burying this dead who doesn't have anybody else to come and, you know, give him the honor of being buried. And they were able to fill several busloads from the place and they went and they traveled to, uh, to, to the funeral place for this, to, to give this guy a proper burial. And this, you know, person who works in the safe deposit box is sitting over there and he's listening to the eulogies. Now, nobody knows. Everybody says, you know, he was a nice guy. The Hasidim spoke a little bit about what happened in the Holocaust and the rabbi. But the guy from that, you know, he says, they don't know him. They don't know what he was doing. So he goes and he says, um, and he says, I need to say something. He says, I want to eulogize. I mean, he wasn't a talker. He gets up over there and he starts telling him the entire story. The entire, you know, situation. He says, this is, he came over to me one day and he says the whole story that I just told you. And then he goes on and he says, you know, I asked this person. I asked this guy, this Shmuel, and I said, why don't you at least put your money that you collect? Put it inside also. Because he said, you know, one time he showed me that feeling. I saw that's all he had inside the safe deposit box. He had nothing else. I asked him, put some extra money, but you have money anyways. Put it inside of there so you can save so the beggar says, to be honest with you, he says, I don't have that much money. You know, it wasn't a surprise because he was begging. But he says, he says, any money that I beg, he says, I keep the minimal for me. And anything extra, what I do with it is I buy tefillin for immigrant children that don't have money to buy tefillin. And he says, so I'm not left with, you know, with anything left to actually put inside the, you know, the safe deposit box. And the people, do you understand what tzaddik this person was? What this person went through? And he gave them the full eulogy and they, you know, it was, it was a very, very emotional uh, funeral. Especially for people that never even knew this person. A few days go by, and he gets a call from a lawyer that they're reading the will, the last will testimony of this beggar, and he is to be included in it. He says, "You know, fine." He goes to um, you know to the lawyer's office, and they start reading off. He didn't have a lot of possessions, and he starts reading off. Says to the apartment that he owned, he's donating that to the psychiatric unit for all the help that they did for him. He said, from the money that he had left over, that he had a little bit that he had left over, and the tefillin, he's giving it to this guy who works at the safe deposit box. 
And the guy was very, you know, like, he's, oh, that's unbelievable. You know, that's like a crazy, that's like a crazy thing to give. And um, in the will, he said that the money that I have, he says, I want you to, you know, build for me a tombstone because tombstones are expensive. The rest of the money is also this person's, uh, belongs to this person for the, that works in the, in the safe deposit box. So he goes and he was going to build him his tombstone. And what he put on his tombstone was three words, the Tefillin Man. That's all that he was known, the Tefillin Man. And he went and they, bought, they made him a very, very nice tombstone and put it over there. Now what he did with the rest of the money, this, uh, you know, this, this uh, person who worked at the bank, he went and he started a fund. And that fund was to help people who can't afford for Tefillin, he would go and he would help people buy Tefillin. Then he inherited the third thing, which is the name, the Tefillin Man, which he also took from him. We see what people go through for a mitzvah when they realize the importance of a mitzvah. Everybody should have one thing that they're connected to. One mitzvah out of the 613 to be like, this is mine. This is what I do. Tzitzit is what I do. Whatever it is, this is what I'm going to do. They should have something that you connect to. Because when you connect to that, it puts it on a whole nother level. You're able to connect it. You're able to put it. It's the personalization. That's how you combine it. Now we started off, we said, why? let's do a quick recap and we'll finish. We started off, we're saying, why is there so many commandments? Why does God want for us? Can't we just relax? And the answer is no. You can't. Why? Because God knows you. And if you start relaxing too much, and if you start going, you're not going to end up doing the, your purpose of being over here. You're going to be like that merchant who is, instead of doing all the business, he's going to go waste his money and all the, all the nonsense and the knowledge guy. So God put us all this mitzvot to make us better people. Because not only the mitzvot make you a better person that you can't get angry, and you can't steal, and you have to be nice, you have to do chasen, you have to go visit the sick. But not only that, it changes who you are as a person. It changes who you are inside. It feeds your spirituality. Each and every single one of the 630 commandments has the ability to change who you are. And even the, the commandments that we can't do, you still have the ability to get that power by learning about it. And that's what you guys did. You guys went and you learned through the 613 commandments. Now I hope, and I would, is now you do it again, the second cycle, and this time you go and delve it a little bit more. You learn it, and you learn it, and you learn it. You're going to be able to produce such a connection to those mitzvah. You're able to understand it, and you realize the true connection that you could have from this, to, from these commandments. Besides the fact that when you do a mitzvah, that you have a little inkling of understanding of why you do the mitzvah, you could connect to that better. You have the ability to connect to it. So Bezat Hashem, may not, we not only be able to just learn the 630 commandments, but we're able to have the Bet HaMikdash, that God will be able to not only will we learn it, we'll be able to actually do all the mitzvot, and actually fulfill the 613 commandments the way that we are supposed to. Any questions? You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.